Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. So here is um, the deal. We're in the middle of a series called Home Address, and we decided to do this series way back in April, which was kind of cool because it was very shortly after we, me and my family, moved to a new home address. And so we decided in April, in March, we moved from 713 West Melbourne to 603 West Windermere Court. And uh, we were so excited to move. We knew that this house that we were moving into was one that uh, we would have had a master bathroom, which we were really excited about. We had an attached garage, which we were really excited about. No more taking groceries back in the rain. Um, It had the perfect number of bedrooms for us. It had the right number of bathrooms for us. It had carpet everywhere. It was just going to be this perfect house for us. And the way that God orchestrated all of it was really cool. Um, and then even on, like, the first day, we're excited about moving in, and we have these old neighbors come and show up with a dozen donuts at our front door and some baked goods and stuff like that. So we were, we were so excited about moving into this place. We loved it. Um, but moving into a new place, it takes a while to actually get used to living there. And uh, there were times when this getting used to living there was very obvious. There were times when, like, literally I would be driving home from work or a restaurant or something, and I would start driving back to our old house. And Lauren was really sweet about it. If she was in the car, she would kind of be like, "Uh, babe, where are you going? And I would come up with some sort of excuse, like the traffic on Knoxville is bad, so I'm just taking a long way around. Or there were also times where... um, like even inside the house, you know how if once you're in a house and you're used to it, you just walk in a dark room and flip on a light switch. No big deal. And the light comes on. This new house, there was a time I walk in a room, flip on a light switch, except there's no light switch there, but there is a picture there. And the picture goes flying off and crashes to the ground. And so, and there were even multiple times where like I would literally run into a wall. I don't know how that happened, but I'd be walking into a room and just like, bam, and my shoulder would nail the door frame, and I have no idea how that happened, but I'm kind of thinking like, I really thought this door frame was a little wider than it is. Maybe it's my shoulders are broader than I thought they were. I think that's probably more like it. Many of you are laughing, and I'm slightly offended by that because I have, I'm just kidding. I know my, I have the legs of a marionette. I get it. (laughs) So the point is it takes time to get into a new home. It takes time to get familiar with a new home. Um, And that same thing happened with Church 214. It's kind of taking Lauren and I some time to get used to it. It didn't take a ton of time, but especially, you know, Church 214 is the name of our church. And so the very first time we were here, maybe even before, I don't remember, but we, uh, I looked up 214 because I knew it was named after Acts 214. And so I was like, I should probably look that up. So I did, and it said, then Peter stepped forward with the the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you. 
fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about it. I was like, okay, I don't fully understand that. It might take a little time to get familiar with it. If I were naming the church, I probably would have gone with like Church 316 or something. I have a good <laughs> verse for that, for God so loved the world. But I didn't name the church, and so 214 it is. Um, but like I said, just like our physical home, the more time we've spent here, the more we get familiar with it, the more I get it, the more I see it happening. Peter and the 11 others stepped forward and became the church. And I see us doing that. I see us stepping forward and becoming the church. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind for Lauren and I that this is our home address. This church is our home. And I, I'm also very confident that for this church, 214, Acts 214, that is our home address. We're right where we need to be. And so in this series, in home address series, we're going through and we're speaking on other 214s in the Bible, other chapter 2, verse 14. And kind of like Chris said a few weeks ago, the day after we, um, when I knew I was going to be speaking in this, I decided I better look through all the 214s. And so I quickly went through the Bible I wanted to get a good 214. I didn't want to get stuck with something obscure, like Habakkuk or something, <laughs> which Chris, for some reason, chose. But I, uh, I went through all the 214s in the Bible at once. And so 214, 214, 214. And I came across Ephesians 214. And it was so clear that God was like, this is your verse. And so naturally, I went past and kept looking at other ones. And I was like, no way. That's not going to happen. And so I did it again. A couple days later, I was like, I should look back. I need to decide what verse I'm going to do. So 2.14, 2.14, 2.14. And once again, Ephesians 2.14 popped up. And I was like, th it was so clear to me, like these giant neon arrows just pointed at 2.14. God was saying, this is your verse. It's something that I have battled with and wrestled with for the last probably two years. It's something that I think every single person in the world not just in this church, but everyone needs to come to grips with and, and hear about and wrestle with. It's something that I believe um, is, is just so relevant in our world today. There, it, It's the perfect verse. And so one more time, I was like, nope, not happening. I'm going to go find something else. And this time, I'm going to look in a different version of the Bible. I'm going to look at the NIV. And so I looked through in the NIV, and it was like, God is just saying, this is your verse. Just do it. So let's read it. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Let me pray before we jump into anything. <coughs> Jesus, I pray that you would speak through me today. I want my words to be your words. I want myself to be just completely removed from this situation. I want you to get the glory in everything that is said and done today. Uh, I pray that each one of us in this room would humbly enter into this conversation and walk away different than when we walked in because of what uh, we hear here today. I pray that you would just help me approach this conversation with love and with grace and with gentleness and really just be led 100% by you. Uh, we love you, God, and we're so grateful that you're here with us today, grateful that you're going to speak through us. In your name, amen. So Ephesians 2.14, um, 
I want to go through it real quick, and I'll kind of break it down a little. So it says, for he himself is our peace. Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. In this case, the two groups are the Jews and the Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And so in first century Jewish culture, the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. They were, in, in the Jews' mind, the Gentiles were kind of lesser people than them. And uh, they, that was kind of the dividing wall of hostility, metaphorically speaking, but there was also a literal wall dividing the Jews and the Gentiles. In the Jewish courts, there was something called, there were kind of like three rings almost. And so in the outer courts, that was called the, Jew, the, the court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were allowed in there only. But then the Jewish men and women were also allowed in there. And then even beyond that, the middle court was called the court of the Jewish women. And the Jewish women were allowed in there and the Jewish men. And then the inner courts were the court of the Jewish men. And so only the Jewish men were allowed in there. And so this dividing wall, were they were literal walls. And each gate to the temple courts would say very clearly, like, Gentiles, stay out. This is, this is your court, this is our court, you stay out of our court and you just stay there. And so not only was it this um, metaphorical division between them, but it was also a literal dividing wall between them. And so uh, all of this, there were just, there was such division and such hostility, uh, significant hostility in first first century Jewish culture between Jews and Gentiles, but also between men and women, and also between cultures and religious groups and political groups, and it was everywhere. Now, we fast forward 2,000 years, and I don't think much has changed. I see division everywhere. I see hostility everywhere. I can't turn on the news, and I can't open my computer, and I can't look at my phone without seeing two sides just pitted against one another, whether it's racial tension or whether it's the Me Too movement or the political left versus political right or pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-life, pro-choice, gender issue divisions, uh, what marriage should look like. There's just division everywhere, and it's always this line with one side pitted against the other. And I kind of get it. There's always two opposing sides to every issue and every conversation. But what I don't always get is that there's always someone who thinks they're right. And I guess I kind of get that because I'm there too. I have a mirror that I can hold up in front of myself. And I see in myself this tendency to say, I'm right and you're wrong. But oftentimes, it's not just that they're content with just being right, but they need everyone else to know just how wrong the other person is. And uh, again, try opening Facebook. Try reading comments on any political post or um, open Twitter after a the police shoot an unarmed black guy. Or um, I can't even read the news anymore where CNN will have a headline of one thing and then Fox News I'll scroll down, and it will have the opposite headline of the exact same issue. And it's just this complete lack of unity everywhere in the world, this complete lack or this complete presence of division 
everywhere in the world. And here's what we need to remember is this division is a direct result of sin in the world. It's not how things were supposed to be. If you open up to page one, there was a time in our world where there was perfect unity. There was a time where there wasn't this division between two sides. You open up to page one of the Bible and you see it. Man and God in perfect unity. Man and God in life exactly how it was created to be, exactly how it was meant to be. But then you turn a page and it's gone. And sin enters the world and there's a fracture between man and God. And that's the second that Satan shows up that happens. Because where there is division, that's where you're going to find the enemy. That's where you're going to find Satan. Where there is division, there is the enemy. Satan wants us to be divided. Satan wants us to hate each other. Whether it's in marriage between a husband and a wife, whether it's in our neighborhoods between one culture or one race and another, um, whether it's inside the church or whether it's outside of the church, Satan's desire is to tear us apart and to just put this complete lack of unity in our world. But here's the sad thing, is that oftentimes Christians are playing a huge part in all of this division. Oftentimes it's us who are professing to follow Jesus. It's people who are professing to be Christians who are instigating many of the issues. I work with high school kids on a regular basis, and it's sad because we are trying so hard to point them to Jesus, and they're interested and they're excited about it. But one of the things that's holding them up is this idea of them. They, they always say, Christians are hypocrites. I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm not a hypocrite. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Christians are hypocrites. They say one thing, and they do another. They say love others, and they don't love others. They say follow Jesus, and it sure doesn't look like they're following Jesus in their life. And first of all, yes, we are. I am. Hypocrite. Maybe the biggest one in here. I say one thing, and I do another so often. I say that my life is built around the Bible, and yet if you were to look at my life on a daily basis, you could point to one or two or three or more things that sure don't look like I'm following Jesus very well. But that's the beauty of Jesus, is that he shows us grace in spite of the fact that we're hypocrites. He shows us grace in spite of the fact that we say one thing and do another. And so second of all, when it comes to these divisions, what we have to keep in mind is we're the ones creating more issues because we're getting offended by people who don't know Jesus. We can't expect people who don't follow Jesus to have the same moral compass as us. We can't expect people who don't follow Jesus to have the same views as us or believe the same thing about marriage as us or s believe the same thing about um, LGBTQ plus issues as us. They don't know Jesus and they haven't read the Bible. Christians know the grace of Jesus. And yet these people who don't know Jesus are are saying things to us, and we're getting offended by it, and we're getting hurt by it, and all bent out of shape, and then we're fighting back, and we're pushing back, and we're saying, you don't know that. You're, you're wrong about that. 
Scott Stalls, in one of my favorite books I've ever read, Jesus Outside the Line, says this, and it's something that has stuck with me when it comes to this kind of division, this conversation. When the grace of Jesus sinks in, we as Christians should be, the, be among the least offended and the most loving people out there. We as Christians should be the least offended and the most loving people out there. And yet sometimes, based on the way we treat each other, it seems like we're the ones who don't know Jesus, and the ones who don't know Jesus are the ones who do know Jesus. That's what it seems like. A few years ago, well, so every year I take a bunch of kids to Youth for Christ camp. And we go, this year we went to Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay, and years before that we've gone to North Carolina and all over the place. And it's, it's a week away at this awesome, awesome essentially a, a retreat center for high school kids. And it's six days, or what is it, six days, five nights, usually. And so every time we give kids a packing list, and we say, here's what you need to pack to come to camp. And there's things like dark clothes for a, an event at night, and there's neon clothes for a black light night, and sometimes it's pirate clothes, sometimes it's Team USA clothes. It's just this long, long list of stuff that kids need to bring. And uh, essentially what it says is we're going to be gone six nights. You need like 18 pairs of boxers, all right? Because we get dirty, and you need 18 pairs of shorts, and you need 18 T-shirts and all that. And a couple years ago, we took a kid. I took a kid named Gus to camp, and Gus was not a Christian kid. He had grown up in a pretty broken home. His dad was definitely not in the picture, and his mom was in and out of prison. And so he lived with his grandma for a while, and he lived with a friend, and then he lived with his grandma again. And in the time that I knew him, which was maybe a year and a half or something, he was all over town living with different people. And Gus also wasn't very uh, blessed financially, and so he showed up to camp, which was scholarship to him because he didn't have money to, to pay for it. He showed up to camp with a backpack and a pair of shorts and two T-shirts and a pair of shoes, and that is not enough to make it through a week of YFC camp. But slowly, after the first night, he was literally out of clothes, um, and kids, the kids we take are not Christian kids either. Many of them have never stepped foot inside a church. Many of them don't have parents who have taught them about Jesus or anything like that. But um, these kids started noticing that Gus is a little short on clothes. And so they started giving him a shirt here or a pair of shorts or a pair of socks here. Some kids took him to the YFC camp store and bought him brand new clothes from the YFC camp store. People bought him a hat. People bought him all kinds of stuff. And he left camp with probably 10 times as much clothes as he showed up with. And Jesus, er, and Gus said yes to Jesus that week. And I'm convinced it's because he heard the gospel, but I'm also convinced that it, he saw the gospel being demonstrated. And the thing is, it wasn't through many Christian people. It was through non-Christians who were loving him and coming alongside of him and clothing him. And the sad thing is, is this is what the church is supposed to be known for. This kind of love of, of seeing a need and filling a need, of coming alongside the orphaned and the widowed, and clothing the people who need clothes, and feeding people who need fed. That's what the church is supposed to be known for, not for our stance on abortion, 
not for how quickly we disagree with someone's political views, not for our stance on same-sex marriage, but how we love others. That's what we're supposed to be known for. As Christians, as a Christian, I want to be known for what I stand for, not for what I stand against. I think the longer it takes someone to figure out which political party I'm a part of, probably the closer I am to following Jesus. Jesus' two greatest commands are these. Love God, love others. Neither one of those say avoid gay people. Neither one of those say be divisive political activists. Neither one of those say make sure the Second Amendment is upheld. Love God and love others, and that's it. And that love others actually includes gay people. It actually includes people that are a different culture than us or a different race than us. It includes people who are a different religion than us. It includes people who don't like guns. It includes people on Facebook that tell us we're wrong for being a Christian. We're wrong for what we believe. It includes everybody. I just started reading a book by Bob Goff called Everybody Always. And when I say I started reading a book, I have the book on my shelf, and I haven't started reading it. But what I have read is the title, and I love the title. Everybody Always. It's not most people, the majority of the time, everybody always. That is who we're called to love. I'm sure it's going to be a good book. I'm really looking forward to it. (laughs) And as I read through the Bible, that's what I see us as Christians called to do. Love everybody always. I see that Paul got that in the New Testament. If you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, you see him loving everybody always. You see him starting his letters out, the, the epistles in the New Testament. He starts out, with grace and peace. And grace to you is the standard Greek greeting at the time, and peace to you is the standard Jewish greeting at the time. And so he's taking these two cultures and combining them into one greeting and saying, this is unity. This is what we're called to do. Love people, include people, accept people. And he does the same with slaves and free people, and he does the same with men and with women, all these groups that way back then were, uh, were divided so much. And yet Paul is telling us, he insists over and over that we must have unity if we're claiming to follow Jesus. As Paul is in prison, he is sharing Jesus with the people who are holding him captive. He's sharing Jesus, and he's leading them to Jesus, and he's loving them as they hold him captive. Paul insists over and over that we focus on less on our differences and more on our similarities. And that one similarity that he kind of talks about is the fact that we are created and loved by God. That one similarity, being created and loved by God, is the most important thing to him. It's all that matters. And that is all that should matter with us. When we get to heaven, things are going to look a whole lot different than they do in this church. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a whole lot more black people in the kingdom of heaven than there are in Church 214. The kingdom of heaven is going to have a lot more Asian people than Church 214 does. The kingdom of heaven is going to have more Democrats than Church 214. 
and more ex-convicts and more people who have had abortions. And it, there's gonna, it's going to look a whole lot different than Church 214 does. And that is a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. Every one of those people is God's masterpiece, even though they're different than us. We went on a family vacation a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, and Lauren's parents got a condo down in Bonita Bay, or Bonita Springs. One of them's the town, one of them's the condo complex. Not sure which is which. Um, anyway, we were on vacation on the Gulf of Mexico, and we had this private beach, except, unfortunately, red tide is happening, which is this algae or something that kills a lot of fish and makes the beach smell bad and have all of these dead fish kind of wash up on shore. And so the beach was closed the majority of the week till the very last night. And on the very last night, we went to a restaurant on the beach. And out behind the restaurant was the beach. And so we went and we got to see the sunset over the beach, over the Gulf of Mexico. And it was this unbelievably beautiful display of God's glory. It was this unbelievably beautiful show of an amazing sunset and there were there were uh, palm trees on the beach and white sand and shells and the beautiful sound of waves crashing and just this stunning stunning picture of God's creation and Jet there's a picture of Jet our little one and a half almost two year old um, really kind of experiencing the beach for the first time. He, he had been to the beach when he was really young, but didn't really get to play in the sand, and this was the first time he got to play in the sand, and he loved it. Um, and so Jet's there playing in the sand, and the unbelievable sunset. This picture doesn't even do it justice at all, but this beautiful, beautiful display of orange and red and waves crashing, and um, the the sand and the sunset and the beach and waves have been crashing on that beach 24 hours a day seven days a week forever <laughs> and that just blows my mind thinking of that and so this stunning stunning picture of God's creation and yet I can't take my eyes off jet I can't take my eyes off my son I love that kid with everything I have and the beach and the sunset and the palm trees are cool. But Chet takes my breath away. We take God's breath away. We are his masterpiece. Every mountain, every lake, every waterfall, every sunset, every view is nothing compared to us in God's eyes. We are God's masterpiece. But... So is that guy who stole your wallet. And so is that girl who cut you off in traffic. And so is that person on the plane next to you that's a different culture than you or a different color than you. And so are all the people that have been, we have been trying so hard to avoid. And I came to the realization as I'm kind of preparing for this talk I think I might have spent my entire life avoiding the same people that Jesus spent his entire life trying to engage. And that breaks my heart. From here on out, I am going to engage people that Jesus engaged. And that is everybody, always. God loves these people just like he loves you and me. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm very, 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 very happy that God loves me right where I'm at. In my mess, in my sin, in my division with others, he loves us right where we are. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get things right. And we are called to do that same thing. Let's not wait to love others until they get it right. Let's love others right now, right where they are, in their mess, in their sin, in their disagreement with us. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see exactly how he, he interacted with those who had different viewpoints than him or saw things differently or thought differently than him. And as I read through the Bible, I think Jesus' model was acceptance but not approval. If you look at the woman caught in adultery, she is caught in adultery. There's no doubt that she is sinning. She's caught in something that is opposite of what Jesus would say to do. And yet Jesus starts with grace. He loved her. He accepted her. And he knew that she was created and loved by God. But he didn't approve of her lifestyle or her decision to sin. He said, go and sin no more. But before all that, he loved her. And he started with grace. He always, always, always started with grace. We don't need to approve of somebody else's lifestyle if we don't agree with it. We don't need to approve of their decisions or their sin. But I think what God calls us to do is to accept them and to love them where they're at, in their mess, in their sin, in their division with us. And Jesus talks about unity in John 17. So John 17 is this cool story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to God the Father immediately before he's betrayed and crucified. And if you don't think that Jesus loves people who think differently than him, then read this passage. Because for his last meal, he chose to eat with a guy who was planning on betraying him and killing him. In John 17, he knows that he's about to be killed, and yet he's praying to God the Father for unity. He's praying to God the Father for other people more than he's praying for himself as he is about to be killed. I want to read verse 22 to you because I think this is exactly what Jesus is telling us today about unity. In verse 22, he says this, and again, this is Jesus praying to God the Father. He says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So that you, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus is praying for unity in his last prayer before his death. He's praying that we are one. He's praying that we are one like the Father and Son are one. And I don't know about you, but I can get along with others. I can keep my political views to myself. I can uh, at least be kind about them. <laughs> I cannot yell them through a bullhorn in someone's face. I can even keep them off Facebook. But can I be one even as the Father and Son are one with these other people? That is what Jesus prayed for. 
He prayed for us to be one with those who oppose us, just like the Father and Son are one. He prayed for us to be one with other races and other cultures, like the Father and Son are one. He prayed for us to be one with Democrats and Republicans or Republicans or whoever our political opponent is, just like the Father and Son are one. Perfectly one, he says. Then it says this, Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, even as you have loved me. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. And this is huge, I think. It's kind of an if-then statement. If we are perfectly one, then the world will know that Jesus loves them. All those people out there who don't believe in Jesus, who don't believe that Jesus loves them, who don't believe that Jesus is pursuing them, they will come to know that truth if we are perfectly one with the people around us. Part of me wishes it was different. Part of me wishes it was like a miracle. Like if they could just see a miracle, if they could just see somebody get healed after we prayed for them, then they would come to know Jesus. Then they would know that Jesus sent them. That's not what he's saying. Part of me wishes it was just God's glory or just if they could just see that sunset that I saw on the beach, then they would know Jesus. But that's not it either. I know what it is. Justin Bieber is a Christian. If Justin Bieber is a Christian, people know that being a Christian is cool, and then they will get to know Jesus. Then they will know that Jesus came for them and loves them. But that's not even close to what God is telling us here. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling us it's only when we are perfectly one, it's when we're brought to complete unity, then the world will know that Jesus came and Jesus loves them. That's what's going to prove to the world that Jesus is the Messiah, being one with those around us. John 13, 35 says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You want to reach people? Love them. Live in unity with them. Be one with them. Everybody, always. I, uh, in preparation for this message, I wanted to, I, I was honestly kind of nervous. I, this is a hard thing to share. Like, many of you might be angry at me right now. I don't know. Uh, but, I wanted to meet with some people and talk through this with them. I wanted to kind of get the feelers out there and make sure I'm on the right track. And one of the guys I met with is a guy named Mo. And Mo, I didn't really know very well, but Mo is a guy who works at Hy-Vee Market Grill. And I'm a frequent visitor to Hy-Vee Market Grill. And so I kind of got to know Mo from him being our waiter. Um, and he's a nice guy, so I wanted to get him get to know him more. But the reason I kind of met with him is because Mo is black, and I'm white. I'm super white. Mo went to a different school than I did. He has a different job than me. He probably has different political views than I do. He grew up in a different neighborhood than I did. Went to a different school. He likes different music than me. There's probably a lot more differences than there are similarities between me and Mo. 
But I, I asked Mo, when I asked Mo, what is my role as a white Christian man in bringing unity and reconciliation to this city, to this world? Mo took a minute. It didn't take too long, but he looked back at me and he said, love. We need to love people. Don't just say you love them, but actually love them. Don't just say, oh, yeah, I love people, and then not do anything about it, but spend time with them. Get to know them. Get to know their culture. Know everything about them. Invite them to your home. Invite them to have coffee. Actually love them. And I don't know if Mo got that from the Bible or not, but it's in there. Romans 12.9 says this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. And so Mo and Jesus are kind of telling us the same thing. You want to be one? Don't just pretend to love others, but really love love them, really do that. Black people, white people, homeless people, Republicans, Democrats, everybody, always. Really looking forward to that book. So the Illinois governor election is coming up, and so all of these yard signs are starting to pop up in people's yards, right? I don't know if you've seen that. It's J.B. Pritzker, and it's Rahner, and uh, they're, they're starting to pop up because the election is coming, and you see television ads and things like that. But I remember back in 2016, when the presidential election was happening, these yard signs were everywhere. I mean, you could drive down the street, and you could see them all over the place. And the yard signs, to me, are just this, like, definition, basically, of division, of disunity. One yard sign for Trump in one yard, and the neighbor next door has a Hillary sign in it, and just... It's like every other house, there's something different. And I remember thinking, like, it, March came around, and a lot of those yard signs were still up. Hillary Kane, 2016. And this was six months after the election. And I just remember thinking, like, this election has been over a long time. Those yard signs aren't doing you any good right now. The candidates that were in the thick of the race six months ago at that time. Now, I don't know if they didn't have the workforce or the motivation to remove what seemed so important so long ago, six months ago. The outcome of that election had been determined, but the yard signs were still there. Ugly, irrelevant, pointless. And I think so often as followers of Jesus, we, we experience this too. We've endorsed the winning outcome. Our candidate wins. Jesus wins. Our sins are forgiven. Our ransom is paid. We are new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But the yard signs still remain. Ugly and irrelevant and bringing division and hate. And Satan is not in any kind of hurry to get rid of those things. He wants to keep them there for the rest of the year. He wants to keep those signs in your life forever. Even though he knows who wins, those signs are powerless against what Jesus has done unless we, unless we give them room in our hearts. They sit there and they discourage us and then they deny us the freedom to live how Jesus calls us to live. But the outcome has already been determined. Jesus wins. Satan loses. The division 
it is pointless at this point. Satan knows the outcome, but he's, he's committed to destroying the celebration. His reminders of the past are powerless. We can't give them a place in our hearts. Ignore those yard signs. Their candidate loses, and Jesus wins. The division that they bring has lost. Jesus wins. The signs that remind us of the past, the signs that, de- that remind us of the way we have been defeated, the signs that remind us of the disunity or the differences between us and someone else, those can be thrown away because Jesus has won already. The perfect unity between you and your neighbor is only possible when your heart is in perfect unity with Jesus. And he made that perfect unity possible on the cross when he took every sin from every person, everybody, anyone who says, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, that was a gift for them. Every single person is offered that gift. And he took every ounce of righteousness that was on his shoulders and he placed it on ours. And he took every ounce of sin and disunity that was on our shoulders and he placed it on his and he was stuck on that cross and it all went away the second that he said, it is finished. Let me pray to end. God, there are divisions in this room that are not glorifying to you. There are divisions in this city and in this world, in our society. And I pray that you would get rid of those. There are divisions in my own heart, within my own family, that I want gone forever. God, I trust you with this. I invite you into this. I invite you into this room. I pray that every ounce of division would be replaced by perfect unity. I pray that our hearts would be in perfect unity with you, And God, I'm so, so grateful for the fact that when we don't show unity, when we turn our backs on you, you're quick to hold out your hand and forgive us. And you're quick to to bring us back in perfect unity with you. God, I'm thankful that no matter what I do, no matter how quickly I turn my back on you, there is always grace that's coming from you. I pray this in your strong name. Amen.